0: I'm not going to comment on stories from BuzzFeed uh, that I have not yet read, uh, but yes, I stand by my previous evidence and I've said it to you on several occasions.
1: Is it on? Look, I'm going to uh, shirt front, Mr Putin.
2: I will not be lectured about sexism and misogyny by this man. I will not. No, wait. It is on?
1: Uh, You bet you are. Uh, You bet I am.
2: I don't like it.
1: Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate.
2: Well, may we say God save the Queen, because nothing
1: will save the Governor-General.
2: Hello and welcome to episode 28 of BuzzFeed Australia's political podcast, Is It On? We are recording this on the morning of Friday, the 27th of October. My name is Alice Workman. I am in Canberra in Parliament House. And joining me from Sydney is Lane Sainty Lane. It has been a huge week here in Senate (laughs) Estimates. (laughs) (laughs) Alec, it has been a
0: massive week. I've been following estimates as best I can from Sydney, which is actually quite easy because it's all streamed online. Mm. Um, But it has been a bigger week for no one but you
2: and, and maybe Michaelia Cash. And maybe Mikelia Aakatafa, who's been forced to resign, but we'll get on to uh, <laughs> yes, we'll get on him to, to leakgate in a minute. First up, what is yes. on the show this week?
0: We are kind of going a bit back in time, Alice. Australia's 26th p.m Kevin Rudd has a book out. And he doesn't, agree everyone to sit down. doesn't everyone
2: doesn't <laughs> everyone?
0: Yes. Everyone does. I mean, just if you don't have a political book these days, what are you doing? What are you doing like, You're yourself? clearly not, you're clearly you not accurately Wasting pitching time. your life or your opinions <laughs> to the relevant publisher. Um, get on to MUP. Um, but anyway, <laughs> so Rudd, Rudd has a book out. He agreed to sit down and chat with us about it. And look, the book, it doesn't hold back it follows him from birth to the night he was elected as PM for the first time in 2007. And so Alice, I was so interested to to realize this. It doesn't even mention the leadership coup. It's, it's about his life before that, but you know, he still has some interesting things to say about his former colleagues and the current mob running the place.
2: Yeah. He drops a swear word too. It's pretty exciting. Um, but, uh, (laughs) but we'll get, as, as
0: he is known to do,
2: (laughs) as he is very known to do. Uh, so we'll get to uh, Kevin Mm -hmm. Rudd in a minute. Um, uh, but, you know, it's, Lane, it's so funny um, We did the interview with Kevin uh, on Monday um, And yeah. at, and at the time I was like Well this is the biggest thing that's going to happen to me this week By golly was I wrong <laughs> So let's kick off with this week's Fast Five And number one is Cash Me Outside Michaela Cash's office leaked to the media about the AFP raids Now, Lane th- There is a, a lot we don't know about this story But I'm going to walk you through it From when it started. So this all started on Tuesday afternoon when the media turned up to the offices of the Australian Workers' Union and said, hello, we're here to film the raids. And the AWU receptionist (laughs) said, I am sorry, what are you talking about? Then the AWU got a call saying that a raid was imminent and they said, well, we already know. The media are already here. So... (laughs) Of course, that sparked a lot of questions. So the Federal Police turned up at the AWU to raid them as part of an investigation run by the Registered Organisations Commission who have been known this week as The Rock. According to The Rock, the raid was in order to seize 10-year-old uh, ten ten year documents about donations to left-wing activist group Get Up and Labor candidates. Um, and they had been given a tip-off. Well, they say they'd been given a tip-off that these documents were being tampered with or potentially being destroyed. And so that's why they were going to do the raids, which is very ironic given the fact that the media turned up on the doorstep before the AFP, taking any element of surprise out. So the media turned up, the raids happened, uh, then the Labor Party, the AWU said, you know, that the media tipped them off, Labor Party got on the front foot and from Tuesday morning were saying, what is going on here? How did the media get a tip off? You know, the media shouldn't be tipped off about AFP raids. It's meant to be independent. Now, the reason that they're calling it a political stunt is that Bill Shorten used to run the AWU. And so a lot of this has to do with his time when he worked at the union. So. The Labor Party are very suspicious about whether this has been politically motivated or if there is an actual need for an investigation. So here's the timeline. The warrant was issued in the morning. A handful yep. of people knew. Uh, then at 3.30 in the afternoon, around 3.30 in the afternoon, someone from Michaela Cash's office found out, they claim through a media source, we don't know what that means, we don't know. People have been implying that means journalists, but it doesn't necessarily. It could mean a media advisor from the Fair Work Ombudsman or from the AFP or from the ROC, or we don't know how he found out yet. Um, so Michaela Cash's office uh, called around uh, a few journals so they could send photographers and, and, and journalists and, um, and cameras down to, to record the raid. Uh, then the raid happened. Uh, Labor yep. came out and called it a witch hunt. Then uh, the next day, uh, the Prime Minister denied claims that the raids were politically motivated. And Michaela Cash was at uh, employment estimates and she denied five times that her office was involved with any kind of leak. That afternoon- Five times. Five times, she denied it five times. The PM got up in question time and said that Cash, he, he was very careful with his words, he said, Cash personally did told me, has given me an assurance that she did not uh, tell anyone in the press gallery. So nothing about the office, just Cash personally is what the PM said. Then we published yep. a story at about six o'clock saying that journalists had spoken to us and confirmed, well, actually, no, Michaelia Cash's office tipped us off. And that's why we were there. Um, yeah. Cash is asked about the story in estimates. And she once again says, "I'm not, you know, I'm not going to comment on a story I haven't read, but I stand by it my previous claims that my office had nothing to do with it. And what she said specifically was, quite frankly, I'm offended on behalf of my staff as to these allegations. They are very serious allegations um, and I refute them. So that's what she said. Anyway, it's 6.30pm. The story's gone up. (laughs) We break for dinner. Like an hour later, when the committee comes back, the first thing that the minister says is... I have just been advised that without my knowledge, one staff member in my office... In the course of discussions with journalists,
0: indicated that he had received information that a raid may take place. I'm advised that this information came from a media source.
2: Now, that happens immediately. The Labor Party yells out... You have to resign. <laughs> I, th- I think it was
0: Senator, I think it was Senator Don Farrell, was. who was the first um, Labour person. I mean, she read that, and then a couple of minutes later, I think the kind of gravity of the situation sunk in, and then the calls began. A senior Liberal minister has a cloud over her head this evening. She's now under immense pressure just to keep her job.
1: She's digging in her heels, defying calls from Labor to resign.
0: So Michaela Cash hasn't resigned, but her media advisor, David DeGarris, has.
2: What I find really interesting is that he not only uh, was in contact with her all day and, you know, she had said that she'd asked her office if anyone had leaked and they said no. So he had watched her deny it five times in estimates. He was also in a pre-question time briefing with the prime minister. He So yeah, he watched her deny it five times. He was in this pre-briefing. He resigned uh, during the dinner break between 6.30pm and 7.30pm and then for some reason was allowed to leave the building without a debrief um, yeah. from either the Chief of Staff or from the Minister herself. So when she was sitting there from 730 30 to 11pm at night being asked questions about this and she couldn't give any information because they, they let him go and they didn't ask him, then the next morning she came back and she said, oh, we don't know where he is. We can't find him. And Labor said, oh, well, you confiscated all of his emails and phones... So that you know there can be an investigation over what happened, and she said we we have. But then it turned out he's been taking phone calls from the media on the phone, on the government issued phone. So he still has it. Now we're on Friday morning. Uh, the the committee uh, decided to to recall again for a third day to ask more questions. Cash is refusing to face the committee today. She's off with a prior commitment in Perth. They've sent George Brandis in, and then George Brandis. The first thing he says is. The AFP contacted Cash's office on Thursday night to say they're investigating the matter and we're not going to give any comment because don't want to we don't want to impinge the investigation it's it's extraordinary I mean it's just
0: it's been an extraordinary week and and this whole story just you know information has been coming up very slowly in in the past few days I think largely because cash couldn't get onto her staffer to actually answer some of the questions that people mm. had mm. Um, but Alice, I want to ask you as well you were actually in the in the estimates room not just watching it online yeah um what can you tell me about the, like what was kind of the vibe in in that room what could you read I suppose from the the people in that room about the gravity of the situation.
2: It's quite funny because uh, on the the night when it happened, so Wednesday night, when she was just mm-hmm. facing this barrage of questions after announcing he'd resigned, the mood was ice cold. Uh, there was no eye contact, right. no in in the breaks, no joking. No, everyone was just, the mood was just dead serious. This is a huge deal. But then, you know, a few hours later on Thursday morning when it started again at nine, uh, the minister was quite relaxed and jovial, and making jokes uh, in between the questions, and you know, chatting with the people around her. So I got the implication from that that you know she'd had these debriefs with the with the PM before in on Thursday morning, and he'd obviously given her some kind of reassurance that her job isn't on the line. You know, someone has taken a bullet, but I mean, there's just a lot of there's too many question marks over what happened here, and it's all a bit on the nose. It stinks, Lane. It stinks. It stinks. I don't want to. I I don't want to, I don't want to quote the Labor Party, but you know, <laughs> there are. There's some kind of. There's something going on here. There is something going yeah. on here, and now it's being investigated. Unfortunately, we're not going to get answers for a little bit. Gosh, Lane, we just don't know. As we don't yeah, know. As Mark De so, <laughs> so, like I guess despondently said the last time he was on this podcast. Oh, the sec, so the last time he was hosting um, a couple of months mm. ago, the amount of people that lie in this building is just extraordinary and... Um... Yes. Um, <laughs> Alright, right, let's Alice. move on. Is it let's time move we on. moved on to yeah, yeah, yeah. number you two? you go. What's number two?
0: Okay, well, some other really big political news this week. Alice happened on Thursday evening when the government announced that it has officially rejected the call for a voice to parliament for Indigenous Australians. Mm. Now, th- this is really big news, and I want to give some kind of background here before I explain what's happened. So, As I'm sure um, many of our listeners will know, this proposal was in the Uluru Statement, a landmark declaration issued by hundreds of Indigenous leaders after a three-day conference at Uluru earlier this year, and it also formed the basis for the Referendum Council's final report to the government about what constitutional recognition should look like. Now, the the council recommended against a kind of mere statement of recognition of Indigenous people in the constitution. It called for um, what was kind of broadly referred to as more substantive change. And and two of the major things were a treaty commission, so a Makarata commission to look at truth-telling about our Indigenous history and also work towards a treaty. And the second one was a voice in the parliament. So that would entail an elected Indigenous Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander body that would give advice to the government on its policy to do with Indigenous issues. But now the government has dashed the hopes of that parliamentary voice. The statement issued last night from Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull, from the Attorney-General George Brandis, and from the Indigenous Affairs Minister Nigel Scullion gave Gave a number of reasons for rejecting the idea. They said it was inconsistent with the fundamental principle of equal rights, as in every Australian has, has one vote. They said that it would inevitably be seen as a third chamber of parliament. And the statement also criticised the referendum council for not providing more detail on how the proposal would work. And the statement also said that, you know, the goal, a kind of better goal, it should be to elect more Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to the to the parliament through regular parties and elections. So Nigel Scullion told the ABC on Thursday night that the kind of main reason he gave for, for the government ditching it is that he just thinks there is no way it would pass a referendum if put to the Australian people. But when he was asked how he knew that, he said he didn't need evidence. So meanwhile... Indigenous groups and leaders are just hugely disappointed and angered by this decision. Noel Pearson said Malcolm Turnbull has broken the First Nations hearts of this country. Here he is on Radio National Drive on Thursday night.
1: I think Malcolm Turnbull has broken the First Nations hearts of this country, expressed in the Uluru Statement from the Heart. He accused John Howard of doing that in 1999. And he has done the same thing
0: in relation to recognition of Indigenous
1: Australians.
0: Um, and the Uluru Statement Working Group said it was deeply disappointed by the decision and that after a decade of talking and millions of dollars spent and this kind of unprecedented consensus about a way forward that Indigenous leaders and groups came up with this year, the process has just come to nothing. So co-chair Josephine Crawshaw said, we have come to a point where seemingly no action will be taken. And, And that statement from the Uluru Working Group also said that Turnbull understands, they said that the Prime Minister understands a minimalist approach. So that kind of Uh, I suppose uh, what some people describe as tokenistic line in the constitution will, it will not satisfy many Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who have said that they want something more substantive. They want a a recognized say in their own affairs. Um, And the statement again, the Uluru statement from the working group said we are being pushed aside again and again. So, Alice we have Aboriginal groups just devastated that all of this hard work and, and discussions and consensus has on on the voice to Parliament they've just been told by the most powerful men in this country no sorry won't work yeah um, but Nigel Scullion, the Indigenous Affairs Minister, said in estimates this morning that the other big recommendation in the Referendum Council report, the, the makarata Commission, to, to work towards a treaty is still on the table for the government. So, you know, that is, uh, I think, in, in some ways, a kind of ray of, of hope forward that this hasn't That not all of the recommendations from the council have been ditched by the government. It is just specifically the the voice to parliament, but there is still certainly a lot of anger out there about the government's decision. And I think we are just going to see this huge issue continue to play out um, because there are, you know, there's so much more to say on this. Yeah. Um, It's such
2: a shame that, I mean, obviously the cash story is important too, but it is a real shame that this story happened, you know, didn't get enough attention this week, in my opinion, because the catch stuff was so big, because it's a really big deal.
0: It is. It, it's such a big deal. And I just, you know, I, I don't at all want to speak for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, but just the, the people that I know and, and the people who, who are commentators on online, the kind of sense of anger about this is, is just enormous. And I really feel for everyone who has put so much time and so much energy into this recommendation only to have it kind of knocked down by the government who just say it's not going to pass at a referendum and we just know that and sorry
2: deal with it um okay time for number three what is it Alice? number three lane is the nbn everything that we love to hate the nbn (laughs) It's, okay, it, It's also <laughs> tell been a, me why we love to hate the NBN. It's NBA. been a big week for the NBN, Lane. Four Corners is a story about the digital divide on Monday night, looking at how some houses with the NBN in Australia have the new fibre to the home technology, while others are still relying on fibre to the node and copper wiring. Asked about this before the episode went to air, Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull had a huge go at Labor, who were the people that originally came up with the idea under Kevin Rudd back uh, after he was elected in 2007. Now, Malcolm Turnbull said... The NBN was a calamitous train wreck of a project when we came into government in 2013. Kevin Rudd said this was going to be fantastically commercial and the public would be lining up to invest in it. That's nonsense. Lane, if there's one thing I know about Australian politics, you fire a shot at someone, by golly are they coming back at you. So, Kevin Rudd... I thought you were going to say, it's all nonsense. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, obviously, yes. But that took an unexpected turn, an also accurate turn. So, what what was this shot Both statements are correct. So, Malcolm Turnbull made these statements and the next day, Kevin Rudd turned up on 7.30 and he said it was all Malcolm's fault. He said that the government had Ah. changed horse midstream. He referred to Labor's fibre optic cable straight to the home plan and said to the government... You cut that off and instead you adopted a policy of landing the fibre optic cable somewhere mysteriously in the neighbourhood. Frankly, the change lies all on your head. And then we had the boss of the NBN, Bill Morrow, turn up to Senate Estimates this week... Um, He said that the NBN will be making an announcement before Christmas about a potential new price pack that would see a cheaper price for faster internet speeds and entice people to buy the faster speeds for their homes. But this is also the man who said that Australians don't really want fast internet. And the reason (laughs) that no one had taken up the super, super fast internet wasn't wasn't because it wasn't available, was because they just didn't want it lane. They just didn't want to, like, you know... (laughs) Have and have Netflix that, that doesn't buffer. They like to buffer. They like you know that waiting thing that you have to get Love every to time you try to. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So a lot of NBN blame game. A lot of lot of slinging. A lot of shots. Whose fault is it? Who cares? Just a lot of news. Okay, Lane, what's number four? So I'm sounding really like apathetic with politics this week because I'm just <laughs> I'm just fed <laughs> up. Okay, Lane, what's number four? <laughs> Alice, yeah. number four. Yeah, it's time to
0: talk about Bay. What? Bay, what? <laughs> what what is this? You know, Bay. Come over, Bay. Um, so Alice, <laughs> I'm I'm actually You're just messing I, with me. I'm actually talking. Lane. You're
2: just messing with
0: me. I'm actually talking about Bay systems. Ooh. <laughs> so this this number four of the Fast Five is actually about one of your favorite topics, the fence, which as <gasps> previously discussed, I do not care about and you do care about. The fence um, around Parliament because- House. Yes, the fence around Parliament House. So it caused an early stir in Senate estimates this week before it was um, completely overtaken by absolutely everything. Uh, But just to recap, the 2.6 metre tall fence. It's part of a $126 million security upgrade approved by politicians last year. But details about the upgrade are in fairly short supply. The argument goes that releasing the full details of the the security upgrade, even including things like how much the fence specifically costs, would compromise security. But on Monday, Alice, the Department of Parliamentary Services confirmed that a department contractor, and this is where comes in, Bay Systems, had lost a 1,000-page security manual associated with the upgrade. Oh it was lost God. in November, but the department didn't find out until February... And the Senate President Stephen Parry said it wasn't stolen, but just lost. And I was, if if you don't know where it is, I don't understand how you know enough to make that distinction. I mean, this, if you just this don't isn't know an where iPhone. it is, like this is a security document. <laughs> how do you know that it's not stolen? It could be either. Anyway, I'm not buying it. The AFP has been informed, and an audit of this whole affair found that there is not a substantial breach of security to Parliament House. So it's kind of you know stand down. But, but still, no one has a clue where this manual is and anybody oh could have it. So Bay Systems said that they had conducted a thorough investigation and are confident it won't happen again. So, Alice, the moral of this story is next time you ask Bay to come over, <laughs> make sure they don't lose a thousand-page
2: security manual on the way. Lane, I have to ask, do you have the manual? Do you have it? I, I don't have it. Do you have it? No, but if anyone wants to leak it to me, I'm, I'm available. Let me ask Nick. Nick, do you have the security manual? Not on me. At the moment. Not on he me. says not on me at the moment. <laughs> well, you know it's so funny because there were stories this week about how the AFP are so overworked that they can't doing you know security around the PM's house that they can't investigate actual crimes. I'm really when I send out good vibes to the AFP this week. I'm really sorry, guys. <laughs> <laughs> They've had a tough week. It's,
0: there's a lot going on. Indeed. Um, okay, Alice, what's number five?
2: All right, moving on. Number five is Willie Banana Stay or Banana Go? I'm not going to apologise for that pun. It was fine. Um, obviously, I'm talking about the Citizenship 7. We're recording this on Friday morning, so we don't know the result. The result is coming out after this afternoon. I apologise for us not waiting, but we just... I don't know. We're busy. Whatever. Um, So we're going to get answers on the (laughs) citizenship this afternoon. Uh, The High Court will hand down its decision, uh, but they won't give out their actual rulings uh, for another couple of weeks. Um, now everyone's eyes, of course, are on Barnaby Joyce, uh, who's the only lower house member to to be drawn into the citizenship scandal. If he is kicked out, he'll have to fight a by-election in the regional New South Wales seat of New England, which is Tamworth, where he lives, um, which the government is kind of confident that he will win, but it's funny because there's been, there's been rumors flying around, uh, from the Nats this week that Barnaby and Fiona Nash have told them that if they get done by the high court, they might not come back. They might just resign and and leave politics. Um, and if that's the case, the Nationals would lose both their leadership team in one hit. So that would be quite huge. But... Um Uh, let's just run through quickly what the hypothetical results will be of the senators getting booted. Um, if Fiona Nash is kicked out, the Nats will have to find a new deputy leader. There will also be one less Nat in the Senate because the next person on the ticket would be a liberal, Holly Hughes. If Matt Canavan, the national senator, is kicked out, Fairfax is reporting that the former liberal national senator, Joanna Lingram, would be his replacement in a countback. But then in order to keep the peace in the coalition, she would have to switch to sitting in the Nats party room, which is a... Quite extraordinary. If uh, One Nation Senator Malcolm Roberts is kicked out, the next person in line is Fraser Anning, who was facing bankruptcy proceedings earlier this year that might have made him also ineligible under the Constitution. But um, <laughs> that appears to be all over for now. If Nick Xenophon How is... Good is One Nation? Oh, my God. <laughs> Huge. If Nick Xenophon is booted, well, he's already announced he's quitting politics anyway. And on Friday afternoon, he is holding farewell drinks in Parliament House. So he ain't coming back. But if the High Court no. do decide... Uh, Um, it it just depends on what they decide about who's going to replace him. If he's found eligible, his resignation will mean that NXT get to pick his replacement. If he's found ineligible, it means the next person on the ticket will be elected. And of course, the two Green senators that have already resigned, but they um, were, ba- were the first two that kind of kicked this whole scandal off. Scott Ludlam has said he won't return to Parliament. Uh, if he's found ineligible, there'll be a casual vacancy and the Greens have announced 22-year-old Jordan Steele-John as his replacement. Um, Larissa Waters has hinted that she does want to come back if she's found eligible, um, so then she can just come back in... Uh, through a casual vacancy, but if she's found ineligible, she'll have to be replaced by former Australian Democrat Andrew Bartlett. Um, for those playing along at home, do do yourself a favor, Google Andrew Bartlett, uh, red wine incident. That's all I'm going to say. So um, it could be summer it could be none. We just don't know. We're calling this on on Friday morning, but you know what? I'm going to go down to the High Court. I will be there. So uh, we'll write it all up, and you guys can check it out. You know, on on the website, buzzfeed.com. Now it's time for Lane's favourite segment. The controversial
0: same-sex marriage
2: postal vote. This
0: plebiscite on
2: same-sex marriage. Postal vote. Postal plebiscite. The postal plebiscite or survey or whatever it is on same-sex marriage.
0: So, Alice, the postal survey is still rolling along, though we are getting closer and closer to the day when we actually find out how Australia has voted on same-sex marriage, which is November 15. Uh, our colleague Josh Taylor bought me an advent calendar to mark down to the day. <laughs> That's nice. <laughs> Which is very lovely of him. It's very Christmassy, um, I suppose, as you might expect, but he just wrote postal survey on the top of it <laughs> in black text. <laughs> and I, I really love it. Thanks, Josh. So. Alice, this week started off with the release of a new research review from a group of 13 pediatricians. They've gone through existing evidence about gay parenting and discovered that, surprise, surprise, the evidence shows that kids of same-sex parents are fine and in fact do just as well as their peers who are raised by heterosexuals. The review also found that it's actually the negative messaging about same-sex families that is harmful to kids. And, you know, this this conclusion is obviously quite inconvenient for the No campaign um, because several of its figureheads regularly make arguments that same-sex couples should not have children, that, you know, having same-sex parents will have a detrimental effect on, on children somehow. So the research review came out and the pediatricians went so far as to say that, you know, you shouldn't say those things because it's actually harmful to kids. And I mean, you know, this is all very interesting. But the fact is, Alice, that nothing in this review is actually new. It's it's all been said and done before. And I was talking to one mum, a lesbian mum, who just said to me, like, frankly, Lane, I don't want to comment on what the research says, because I know what it says. You know what it says. It's been said before. The only reason it's in dispute is because people who kind of have political or ideological or religious reasons to not believe it, don't believe it. And I'm not going to stand here and and repeatedly tell media organisations about how actually functional my family is because I find that quite demeaning. (laughs) And, you know, she just said that to me and I was like, I I hear you completely. And so I really want to say here that while the research is is no doubt welcomed by Manny, it's also really important to say that there is this element of exhaustion and constant doubt and criticism being levelled at these families that make yet another you know, hey guys, here's the research. They're actually fine. Study a little hard to swallow, I guess, in in some ways. The other thing that happened with the postal survey this week is that there was an episode of Q&A devoted to same-sex marriage. That's right, Alice. The shoutiest show On the shoutiest issue, Uh, I can't say it was an enjoyable hour of TV, but there were some striking moments, like when comedian Magda Subansky told the Anglican Archbishop of Sydney, Glenn Davies, that she completely accepts the church doesn't want to marry gay people. But why does he want control over the civil law? Here's Magda. Now, I accept that the Catholic Church will never marry me, but you won't even let me marry outside the church. What is it, how, why is it your right to determine, fair enough, in your, in your domain, you do what you like, we live in a live and let live society, I don't want to tell anyone else what to do, why should you have the right to tell me, in a civil, or any, any other person, straight or gay, what they do in the civil domain, okay, that's, that's not that your that domain. That
1: domain. Let's let him a brief response.
0: So, the last postal survey update is that we got yet another ABS estimate this week. Now, 74.5% of Australians have returned their surveys. And I know that seems like a jump from last week, but mm-hmm. actually, the ABS adjusted their estimation method from counting, from estimating the weight of boxes with envelopes in them to actually counting the envelopes. And that led them to realise that they had more than they thought. Wait, 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 wait. Anyway. So, these, so these, yeah. these
2: numbers that they're putting out are guesses. They're not actual numbers.
0: No, they're they're not actual numbers. They're they're estimates. So they, yeah, previously they were doing it kind of by a weight estimate and then they did a a counting estimate. And yeah, so no, they're they're not official numbers, but they're kind of estimates. And obviously the the last few have been a bit less accurate than we thought, but they are saying that, you know, the most recent one is kind of a a more accurate But how um, do we
2: know? If it's a guess, how do we know?
0: Oh, we don't know. But, you know. They got it
2: wrong before. We just don't. Yeah. <laughs> got it, they've got it wrong before. This podcast has turned again. real cynical, but, like, come on, come on, Lane. These are important <laughs> questions that we need to be asking. Keep going.
0: Yeah, they are. So... There's Anyway, the, there's definitely more at this point than I thought would be returned. Um, but the last thing I want to say is that according to some yes polling analysis I saw the other day, as more votes come in, people are less likely to be kind of super pro yes. So this uh, polling suggested that the yes vote is dropping slightly as more people send back their ballots. But, you know, that that polling and, and a lot of other polling also still indicates that yes will win. But else I don't trust polling. So who can say... Say what will happen on November fifteenth, and remember, everyone, if you want to have a say on other people's marriages, be sure to return your form. It has to be re- it has to be received by the ABS on November seventh. Uh, and Alice, I think that's the postal survey update for the week.
2: Gosh. Okay. All right. Well, moving on. <laughs> Why are you saying? Oh gosh. Okay. All right. Just all of it. All of it together. It's just a lot. Okay. Now our next guest lane at the time I had spoken to him, had not sent his survey form in, but assured me that he was going home to Queensland to do it. I am, of course, talking about former Australian Prime Minister Kevin Rudd. Now, next month, November, will be 10 years since Kevin Rudd was elected Prime Minister of Australia, breaking the 11-year stronghold that the Liberal Party Prime Minister John Howard held. Lane, do you remember Kevin 07? Do you remember the campaign? Uh, Only
0: very vaguely. I mean, I was in year 10 when it happened and I, you know, I was kind of vaguely engaged, but I certainly wasn't a politics nut while I was in high school. So I only have the kind of vaguest memories of it. Do you? I mean, you would remember.
2: Yeah, I was at uni, and I remember uh, like uh, I went to uni with a lot of people that were wearing Kevin 07 shirts, and really, you know, these were kids that had grown up under Howard and were really feeling the vibe for a change in the country. Mm-hmm. And I remember watching yeah. it on TV, and I was in a room of people that were like ecstatic when he when he won. It was quite an um quite an interesting interesting time. So to coincide with the Kevin 07 anniversary, Kevin Rudd has released Part One. Of what he says is two, but potentially could be three memoirs, and it's called Not for the Faint Hearted. Now, this part one uh, that is six over six hundred pages long that I sped read right over the weekend details his life from 1957, when he was born on a rural farm in Queensland, to the night he was elected Prime Minister of Australia in 2007. It contains a lot of hilarious anecdotes. Uh, some of my favourites are the time when he. Worked at Roseland Shopping Centre in Sydney, in in, mm-hmm. in 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 Southern Sydney, which is quite so near I grew up. So I found it very funny when he worked at Roseland Shopping Centre and his job was to help the models get changed backstage. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, when he went to North Korea, when he tried to smuggle scotch into North Korea and was in an uh, like an elevator or something, and the power went out and they got stuck. Anyway, there's some great stories in there. Uh there's also a lot of <laughs> Sounds like it. There's also a lot of a lot of uh, you know, kind of the the behind the scenes of what happened in the in the lead up to the election campaign. There's a bit of there's a bit of mudslinging. Um so I sat down with with uh with the former PM at the start of the week for a chat about it. Now uh we are in the foyer of the Intercontinental Hotel, so there is a bit of background noise. And also he was uh, in a throwback to last week's David Linehelm episode. He was drinking tea or coffee. So there is also some China noise. We need to, we need to tell these politicians <laughs> to just lay off the
0: liquids for five minutes while we talk to you. I mean, how hard is it? Uh, anyway. Anyway. Sorry, Kevin. He, I hope you enjoyed your tea.
2: He, here's Kevin Rudd. <laughs> Kevin Rudd, thanks so much for joining us on BuzzFeed News.
1: I am delighted to be on BuzzFeed News (laughs) with your very fluffy microphones.
2: (laughs) Now, I thought we could kick things off by playing a quick game of word association. So I'm going to list 10 politicians and I wanted you to give me a one word answer. The first thing that comes to your mind. So we'll kick off with number one, Malcolm Turnbull. Fraud. Number two, Bill Shorten. Labor. Number three, Tony Abbott. Mad. Number four, Barnaby Joyce.
1: Even madder. Number Mm -hmm.
2: five, Scott Morrison. Nasty. Number six, Julia Gillard. Deputy. Number seven, Peter Dutton. Stasi. Stasi. Number eight, Donald Trump.
1: Twitterama.
2: <laughs> Number nine, Kim Jong un. Hairstyle. Number ten, Kevin Rudd.
1: Even better hairstyle.
2: <laughs> Now uh, we're here, of course, today to talk about a volume one of your book, Not for the Faint Hearted, which I have madly read over the last two days, all six hundred pages, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. <laughs> you poor person! <laughs> it was a great read. I learned a lot. Um, I wanted now today. Malcolm Turnbull uh, has been talking about one of the things you call uh, one of your legacies in the book, which is the NBN, the National Broadband Network. He said that uh, he said today the whole project was a mistake and a massive waste of money. In hindsight, do you agree?
1: Well, Malcolm Turnbull um, is uh, being loose with the truth yet again. Uh, remember, uh, my government's plan for the National Broadband Network was fiber optic to the premises. Fiber optic cable to the home, the business, the school, uh, the factory, uh, the hospital, in order to wire the entire country Uh, with enough bandwidth and band speed to make a difference for businesses, for institutions and for the rest, to boost productivity. And that was the advice we had from the Australian Treasury at the time. Second, what Turnbull and Abbott did after they won the 2013 election was that they turned that proposal on its head and rather than being fibre optic to the premises, they turned it into fibre optic to the node that is, this mystical point somewhere mm. in the suburb. What does it mean in practice? That the poor punters, in order to get a decent bandwidth and decent band speed, would then have to pay to link the cable from the node to their own house or simply be dependent on the remaining copper cable from that node to their own house, which slows down the entire network. No wonder, therefore, no one is taking it up because they have changed the proposal 100%. And furthermore, what I'd say is the reason they've changed it 100% is because it suits the interests of News Limited. News Limited did not want fiber optic cable to the home. Why? Because it would provide automatic competition for their uh, Fox cable monopoly here in Australia uh, by enabling companies like Netflix to go straight to the premises with their own movie products. This was pure, crass commercial interest on the part of News Limited. News Limited bagged the hell out of uh, the Labour government's National Broadband Network proposal for those reasons. And surprise of all surprise the Turnbull-Abbott plan for NBN turned out to be identical with the News Limited plan for NBN. Go figure.
2: Do you think that it can be salvaged, the NBN as it is now? Complaints are skyrocketing, no one's taking it up, there seems to be a lot of unhappiness across the country. Do you think that we can get a national broadband network to to what you aspired to when you were PM?
1: The plan that we put out uh, in 2008-9 was the right plan for Australia because it took fiber optic cable to people's homes. Uh, If this government had half a brain, rather than simply acting as the lackeys of News Limited's commercial interests, they would have continued with the plan that we had originally and they should still do so.
2: Now, there's an urban myth that the plan for the NBN was written on the back of a napkin or a coaster, depending on on who you talk to, whilst on a plane flight. Is this true?
1: No, that's uh, cod's (laughs) wallop. It's just cod's wallop. I mean, I I often jot things down on the back of menus and bits of paper, but Mm. no, that's not where it was planned. And that's just part of the normal uh, slander from our political opponents and from News Limited seeking to discredit a proposal which was a fundamental challenge to News Limited's commercial interests.
2: Now, the book is mainly about your legacy. It talks about your the time from when you were born and grew up in Queensland to uh, the lead-up to you becoming Prime Minister. I'm interested to know, in hindsight, before you fall asleep at night, what's the one thing in the back of your brain that you think, this is what I would like to have done when I was Prime Minister?
1: I actually don't think that way. Oh, OK. I really don't. I mean, when you're given an opportunity in public political life to achieve as much as you can. You seize every moment of every day and you go ahead and do that. And if you look at the list of what we had done in that period, keeping the country out of recession during the global financial crisis, getting Australia a seat around the global table for the G20 and helping to establish the G20, securing for Australia a seat on the UN Security Council, uh, legislating for a mandatory renewable energy target of 20% by 2020, providing Australia's first ever paid parental leave, Uh, creating the uh, scheme which would enable uh, parents to assess the performance of each school based on the literacy and numeracy standards of that school. The apology to Indigenous Australians, closing the gap between the education and lifestyle sorry, and life opportunities of Aboriginal Australians versus non-Aboriginal Australians, forcing governments to report publicly to the parliament each year on progress or regress. We didn't waste time. We got down to it and did a whole lot of stuff. We could have had uh, more time to do more. But those who planned the coup of June 2010, uh, representing the deep factional interests of... um, and self-interest within the Labor Party, put an end to that.
2: Well, I might offer up one thing. We're currently going through a postal survey on same-sex marriage. Now, you live in New York. Have you voted?
1: I'm about to uh, vote when I get to Brisbane in a few days' time.
2: Oh, great. Now, unfortunately, your godson was caught up in in some of the, what I think people have been described as the fair debate, but, you know, really he was punched when he was defending uh, when he was standing up to someone saying some quite hateful things. Do you? Does the ugliness of the Postal Survey campaign make you regret not legislating same-sex marriage when you were in office?
1: I think it's uh, pretty important to put together, put to bed a few more urban myths here. Number one, when I went to the election in 2007, the mandate which I put to the people beforehand was that I would not be changing the Marriage Act in that term, Mm -hmm. 2007 to 2010. Secondly... Uh, What I had agreed with uh, Anthony Albanese and Penny Wong was that when we went to the 2010 election, I would put a proposal that we would open it to a parliamentary vote if we were Mm -hmm. re-elected. Julia Gillard put paid to that when she launched the coup in June 2010. Thirdly, in order to succeed in that coup, uh, Julia Gillard, despite um, her apparently progressive stance on a range of things suddenly discovered religion decided that she was opposed to marriage equality, that she was opposed to same-sex marriage. Why? Because one of the factions which supported her leadership bid, uh, the uh, Shop Assistance Union, a deeply conservative, deeply Roman Catholic and uh, deeply hostile to any change to the Marriage Act. When I returned to leadership at the end of 2013, what I put to the Australian people was, uh, if you vote for us to return to government, then we will put this before the parliament as our as our first act. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a result the australian people voted in instead abbott and turnbull. that's the actual history.
2: Mm-hmm. that is the history but you know you made the decision not to 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 say that when you were elected in 2007 that you wouldn't bring it up for for 3 years in hindsight could that have been something that you could have brought up earlier or was it just not part just, of
1: the... I just believe in honouring your word to the Australian people. I okay. said I wouldn't change it in those three years. Uh, and there were a range of things we had planned to do for a second term. This was one of them. Mm-hmm. And those plans were um, pushed to one side by the, <coughs> by the coup of June of 2010. Had uh, Julia Gillard stuck to her original principle, which was uh, one where she would constantly say to me in that three-year period, I wish you guys would just get over it. Uh, And then, to succeed with her coup, allies herself with one of the biggest uh, anti-same-sex marriage factions in the Labour Party, the SDA faction. I'll let your listeners reach their own conclusions about all that. As I said, I was simply being transparent with the people in 2007. I said I wouldn't change it. I wasn't able to bring it to a conclusion after 2010 because I was removed uh, by Julia Gillard, who gave a commitment to her factional backers that she wouldn't change it. When I returned to leadership in 2013, I said I would, and the people voted against it. That's the history of it.
2: So how do you plan on voting in the postal survey? I mean, oh, do of you, course I'll, do I'll you... be
1: voting for support. I've been campaigning for the yes vote um, through my own social media network. In fact, I was asked recently by the campaign to send out messages explaining why the Chinese community in Australia should be voting yes.
2: Oh, are you I've... planning to do that?
1: I've done that. Oh, you've done it? I've okay. done that already. I've put out a whole range of uh, supportive material. I've highlighted what happened to my, uh, my godson when he was uh, mm. bashed uh, in Brisbane. Um, and uh, I think uh, I cannot for the life of me understand why Turnbull uh, doesn't simply do as I promised to do in 2013, which is open it to a vote in the parliament, let the parliamentarians vote the way they want, and the thing will pass. End of story.
2: Now, the name of our BuzzFeed podcast is Is It On?, which is, of course, a reference to political coups and uh, the murmurings of any leadership tensions once they get in the gallery in Canberra. So I have to ask you, Kevin Rudd, is it on in the UN? What do you think? Ten years' time, would you run again for Secretary-General? Oh, God,
1: no. (laughs) It doesn't work that way in the UN. There was um, one opportunity to run, and that was uh, last year because the UN has this crazy rotational system whereby it's the turn of Western countries, this rotation. And once that's through, it then goes to other geographical groupings of which we are not a member. This was the one opportunity. Turnbull uh, said to me uh, that he would back me. Uh, That's why he told the uh, New Zealand Prime Minister at the time, John Key, uh, to release Australia from the promise which Tony Abbott had made, uh, to support Helen Clark. So uh, what we had was Malcolm Turnbull making it plain that he was going to back me, and then at five minutes to midnight uh, he got scared. Uh, the conservative wing of his party who were telling him t- to do uh, whatever they wished in terms of climate change, in terms of same-sex marriage, in terms of uh, renewable energy, in terms of coal. Uh, told him also to um, not support me for an endorsement for the UN Secretary Generalship and Turnbull rolled over and played dead.
2: How is your relationship with our current Prime Minister? Have you spoken Non-existent. to him non existent so there's no communication? Well we between had a very close
1: relationship, but an act of such direct personal betrayal uh, when he said repeatedly to me in his office as Prime Minister prior to becoming Prime Minister and as communicated through his foreign minister Julie Bishop that I had his support mm. and then to change his mind at one minute to midnight. That's an act of um, first-class betrayal. I suppose that's politics. It's not the way in which I would choose to conduct politics. With someone if I'd given them an undertaking like that.
2: I've coined the term political ADD, which I think describes uh, what you went through as, as, as Prime Minister. Since, uh, since John Howard, who was in office for just over 11 years, we haven't had a PM last more than three years in power. Um, what do you think of the political ADD cycle? Do you think it was a period of its time? Do you think that Malcolm will last the course or will the cycle continue to ravel on and someone, if it's Tony Abbott or someone else, will, will spill him and, and become the new PM before he even hits two years.
1: The, um, in terms of uh, the current state of Australian politics, I think you're right to point to a, a huge turning point being the coup of June 2010. Uh, and since then, Australian politics on both sides of the House has been in, in some disarray uh, as a result. There's a reason for that, is that those who engineered the coup back in 2010 created, frankly, a new set of norms. But frankly, if a, um, a political leader at some point, a prime minister, uh, was going to go through any political difficulties, then you simply remove them. It was a bit like putting the garbage out at night. That's the culture they created. It's a pervasive and dangerous culture, and it's a destructive culture, but it's infected both sides of the house. So that's as it's been. Secondly, right now, I think, the challenge for Australian politics is not so much questions of leadership, it's where is the policy direction, the big long-term policy direction for this country, which is now underperforming economically in the world, where we are seeing the rise of Hansonism, and we are seeing Australia retreating from its global obligations, including on climate change. Where is the long-term vision? Where's the long-term planning? I think when those questions are answered by either side of politics, you'll start to see a return to normality. The reason why so many people in Australia are now, as it were, uh, migrating to the extremes, look at what's happening with support for Hansenism in Queensland, is because they no longer believe they've got a stake in mainstream politics because mainstream politics doesn't deliver. Now, when Labor or the Conservatives... Uh, Resolve that they've got to bring those people back on board, give them a stake in the future, create opportunities for those who currently don't have them and carve out an economic plan for the country's future which can deliver long-term sustainable growth and, frankly, instability in Australian politics will then fade away. But until that happens, these deep structural factors will continue to cause our politics to be much more unstable than it should otherwise be.
2: What's your advice to, to Tony Abbott, who's sitting on the back bench, you know, lobbing grenades at the PM every chance he gets? What what advice would you give him?
1: I'm not in the business of giving gratuitous advice to him or to others. I think uh, Abbott is probably the most destructive conservative uh, force in national politics that we have seen since BA Santa Maria. Um And frankly, uh, his views do not belong to the Australian mainstream on anything. Um, And uh, Abbott, by his very nature, uh, is just a pugilist. Abbott, by his very nature, likes to be boxing people in the head. Abbott, by his very nature, wants to be in conflict and controversy. If you ask Abbott, what's the sort of Australia he wants to build for the future? He'd stumble in his answer. Unless, of course, the monarchy was attached to the answer.
2: <laughs> well, I wanted to ask you about where you think the future of the country is going. There's a quote in your book. You say that uh, in the midst of a conservative assault around the politics of terrorism, race and refugees, in its wisdom, Labour's central campaign had decreed that all its candidates would run on a national theme of saving jobs and saving Medicare. This was the sort of old faithful campaign Labor would inevitably trot out when it had no idea what to run on. This is a reference to 2001. But... It also is what happened at the last election last year, 2016. Save Medicare was the main focus of the Labor campaign. What do Labor need to do, in your opinion, to win the next election?
1: For any uh, Australian uh, Labor Party uh, leadership um, its uh, policy mission has to do two things. It has to craft out the vision for the economy's future by creating the new industries for tomorrow and by creating uh, the platforms for those industries to succeed which is why the national broadband network was so vital um, secondly at the same time uh, Labour Party the other part of its mission is to maintain and, and expand the Australian social contract So that those who are otherwise going to fall off the bus, those who don't have enough money, those who have no opportunities, those who are despairing of their chances for themselves and their kids, are actually given fresh hope. Our job is to push both these levers at once, grow the economy through the industries of the future, through technology-based firms, through artificial intelligence, through the breakthroughs in bioscience and the life sciences and through the new turbocharging platforms like effective broadband for the economy at large, while still maintaining our tradition of social justice. That's how Labour parties win governments. Not by doing one of those things, but by doing both those things. That's the challenge for Mr Shorten and his team.
2: Uh, in your book, you uh, you talk a lot about how when you were teaching at Harvard and the things you'd say to aspiring politicians and I guess the practical advice you would try and give them. And and you talk about how uh, the mission of progressive politics is to write the country's history, the unspoken mission of the conservatives is to unwrite it, at least to the extent that they can get away with, which I think is a really fascinating way to look at uh, politics and I think probably quite accurate with in terms of um Uh, the the divide between Labour and Liberal Party. I know that one Labour Party politician said to me once, the Liberals should get one less term in office because they don't actually put any policy forward. They just take apart everyone else's. Um, But I just was wondering what you thought about this idea of of the next generation. We've just seen in uh, New Zealand a 37-year-old elected. We've seen in Austria a 31-year-old elected Chancellor. We've seen young people kind of take hold of politics all around the world. Is that what Australia needs, a young person with a new, fresh generation to, to take over?
1: I don't believe in being ageist about politics at all. Such a person could be uh, 17 or 27. Mm. Uh, they could be uh, 67 or 77 or 27. doesn't matter. It's The question is whether they have a coherent policy vision for the country's future. Building a strong, sustainable economy for the future, providing for environmental sustainability and playing our part in sustaining the planet through effective action on climate change and a social justice agenda which keeps everybody on the bus. Mm. Now, whether that leader is 27-year-old, 57-years-old or 77-year-old is immaterial. Um, But on the broader question of um, our role as progressive politicians in Australian national life, the record speaks for itself. Every significant social and economic and foreign policy reform in this country's history has been undertaken by Labor governments. What the Conservatives have then done is seek to unstitch as much as they can get away with. Take the example of Medicare. Uh, The Labor Party began the process in 1972 of introducing a universal health insurance scheme. The Liberal Party, for the following 20 years, did everything they could to unstitch it and remove it. Guess what? The Australian people eventually told the Liberal Party, stop, we want this thing to continue. And the Liberals' current strategy is, OK, we'll preserve the name of Medicare, defund it to the greatest extent possible, so hopefully it falls on its knees. It's a bit like the, AB, the Conservatives' approach to the future of the ABC. They don't like the ABC because it provides scrutiny on what the government is actually up to, rather than just a pat on the back from their News Limited mates who control 70% of the print media in this country. So what does the Conservative government do with the ABC? Well, when we're in office, we provide extra funding for the ABC to expand the voice of the national broadcaster, um, including providing greater scrutiny of, of then Labour governments in power. What does the what do the Conservatives do? Uh, they keep the name of the ABC and progressively gut any mainstream uh, news program, including most recently Late Line, to reduce the scrutiny on themselves. It's a standard conservative trick.
2: Mm. Now you've mentioned her name a few times, but I, I can't let you go without without asking you. Uh, Julia Gillard doesn't get much of a mention in this book. This being volume one, I think you know she gets a passing from time to time. You have some quite interesting things to say about Wayne Swan and Alexander Downer and, and some other people. But uh, what can we expect from book two? Give us a bit of forward sizzler. Is there some some things that are going to come to light, or or what uh, what should people what should be people getting be getting ready for? Because obviously I'm, I'm encouraging people to buy this volume but
1: well actually no if you go to the index you'll see a whole bunch of references to julia all of them are positive mm. and that's an accurate reflection of the period
2: i thought it was quite copacetic really
1: uh, she was my partner she was my deputy and we worked fantastically together as a team as we would have continued to have worked had she not done what she uh, then did in june of 2007 when she thought she could pull a swifty uh, Australian people never forgave that. As for the future, uh, I'm still in the business of researching that period. We'll see what I find. You're
2: still researching?
1: Well, if you look at this volume, uh, I'm not wishing to turn your listeners off, but it's got more than 1,000 endnotes.
2: <laughs> it, it, does, it does have quite a few notes And that's because I actually it.
1: believe in something called evidence rather than just <laughs> shooting from the hip. Uh, and I'm doing the same for the second volume as well.
2: I think it's quite... The, the way that the book's been described uh, in Australian media over the last few days is, as it's been trickling out, Is it, some people have said it's, it's a revenge book or a setting-the-record-straight book. How do you like... How, what do you think people should... How should people view this book?
1: Um, well, the only media outlet that's described it as an exercise in political revenge uh, is News Limited uh, through the pages of The Australian who put that headline over the top of a story which said nothing of the sort. Mm. Secondly, um, in terms of their allegation that it was an exercise in revenge against Julia Gillard, my simple challenge to News Limited and The Australian is, give me the page number where I say anything negative about Julia Gillard. That's just utter bullshit. (laughs) Um, So therefore, um, all I'm saying is you call each period and politics for what it is, the best of your ability, and I'll be doing that for the next stage as well.
2: <laughs> Kevin Rudd, thanks so much for talking with us.
1: Good to be buzzing along with Buzzfeed.
2: <laughs> so that was former Australian Prime Minister Kevin Rudd. Um, I, I asked him. I asked him uh, if we could have a chat with him. When the next book comes out, and he said, "Oh, maybe we'll see how it goes," but you know, he seemed vaguely aware of what Buzzfeed was, so I guess that's a good sign. Uh, I'm sure that you know everyone <laughs> has Kevin's done a lot of interviews this week, so I'm sure everyone's kind of seen him, uh, seen him all around. Um, but uh, it, it, it it was interesting. I so I spoke to him at the start of the week, and uh, on next week's podcast, we're going to talk. Uh, we're going to talk about Kevin Rudd again, but in a different way. Uh, Sean McAuliffe, uh, who is an amazing comedian, one of the greatest political comedians in Australia, has got uh, the second season of his TV show, The XPM, out, which is based partially on Kevin Rudd's life, you know, time in office and time out of office. Um, so I think that I'm, you know, I think it'll be good chat. I think we'll, we'll chat comedy. We'll chat politics. We'll talk about Mad as Hell. We'll talk about the Chattanooga Choo Choo and Barnaby Joyce. I think it'll be quite fun. It'll be quite fun. Sounds great. <laughs> yeah. I'm anyway. excited. Anyway, uh, Lane, that's kind of all we got time for this week. We're not gonna do Gallery Whispers or Binge Juice because we've um we've had just like a just a full on it's been full on. It's been full on. Yeah, it it has been full on.
0: Oh actually, Absolutely. actually,
2: actually, mm. can you just ask Nick Ray what he thought about yeah. what he how he summed up meeting Kevin Rudd to me?
1: When he found out I was from Dubbo, he goes, Did you get your laptop
2: from Year Eleven? <laughs> and I said, No. But it's okay. I, I don't care. <laughs> It just got really weird and awkward, but I never got the laptop from 2008. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. Well, thank you, Nick, for all of your amazing work this week and always. you know, hopefully still basking in the glory of the award that you won last week, Nicholas. Um, I also want to say a big thank you to Josh Taylor, Nicola Harvey, Richard James, Peter Holmes and the whole pod team. A big thank you to Rode Microphones for supporting the podcast. You can go to buzzfeed.com slash is it on or subscribe on iTunes with your favourite podcasting app, leave a rating and a review. We'll be back next week with another episode. um, We're... Sean McAuliffe will be with us, which is uh, pretty exciting. And we'll also discuss the fallout from, from the High Court and, you know, update you on on the, the status of, of uh, Michaela Cash, Mickey KK. How will she go? <laughs> um, I am at Workman Alice <laughs> on Twitter. She's at Lane Sainty. We do
0: love your feedback and we do take it into account. So hit us up on Twitter anytime, as you all know you can. So Alice, got to ask, it's been a pretty bad week for the government. Mm. Uh, is it on? You know what? Is mm. Michaela
2: Cash gonna stay or is she gonna go? Unfortunately, it looks like the story will be pushed out of the news cycle by the High Court, and whatever happens there. Because if Barnaby goes, that and that's number one news, right? So with the AFP investigating, there won't be much more information coming out about what happened to Michaela Cash. I mean, we've still got some stories that, that we're going to run about her and her office, but you know, it's uh, I, I think that she's gonna I think she's gonna stay. I think she's going to stay, yeah. but um, obviously Labor and the Greens think that she should be fired. So, how how is she rating on the embattled scale? I would say moderately embattled. Yeah, well, stage. she reached embattled quite quickly,
0: I would say. Yeah. Um yeah. yeah. But how long will she stay at embattled? That is the question. That is um, the question. That
2: is the question. Yeah.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, there you go.
2: All right. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next week. Bye. <laughs>